Thank you to Marcus for having us. Um, my name is Elena Come Del Junco. I'm going to be joined in a moment by um, my friend and collaborator, Gal Katz, whom I'll introduce before he starts speaking. Um, obviously, those of you who are here on purpose know that our subject of conversation or of discussion is philosophers as pundits, um, a topic that is perhaps always relevant, but even more so in a time of geopolitical crisis. Um, and before I hand it over to Gaul, I just want to start with two questions. So the first of those is, why is it that even if almost all pundits kind of suck, are philosophers particularly prone to embarrassing themselves? And by the end of this, I think we're going to have an answer um, before we get into the weeds of actual philosophy. Um, I think it's worth noting that the sort of embarrassment of philosophers is quite different than that of, say, the New York Times opinion writers. So all public speaking, of course, has its kind of risks of getting things wrong. So, you know, the usual way of overcoming that, of, you know, overcoming the fear of looking stupid is essentially by being very smug. And so that's what we get in the pages of the New York Times and the Atlantic, Harper's, whatever. Um, you know, we see this in the kind of latest round of these supposed public intellectuals who on the one hand are espousing um, wisdom that's supposed to be common sense, yet at the same time is somehow sophisticated and even dangerous. So people like Jonathan Chait, Barry Weiss, Thomas Friedman, um, whose title, whose book titled The World is Flat is sort of exemplary of that sort of hubristic smugness. Um, and of course, there are philosophers like that. I think that like in France, um, BHL, as he's known, is kind of a good example. I don't I think the best way to explain him is the sort of Frankenstein's monster of Alan Bloom and Tom Friedman. But in general, philosophers are also humiliated for another reason, which is that they end up kind of on the wrong side of history. And so there's obvious examples like Heidegger, who we're not certainly going to try to defend, but then as we'll see in Gaul's section, more ambivalent figures like Hegel or Foucault. And so it seems like philosophers kind of suffer under their own weight of comprehensive or universal knowledge. They don't allow for kind of the newness of events to lead them to revise their theories. And instead similar in a similar act of smugness to other pundits, stick with whatever pet theory or system they're known for um, and try to make the present confirm that. Um, and so ironically, that commitment to being right makes embarrassment more and not less likely, as we're going to see um, throughout. So that's the first question, which is why philosophers are particularly prone to embarrassing themselves. And as I turn it over to Gaul, um, I want to ask the second question which is why these you know, self-professed devotees of truth, um, famously kind of partisans of the most acute analytical rigor and you know, who make a great deal of the etymology of their profession of being lovers of wisdom, why are they so addicted to public humiliation? And I should say that you know, despite the polemic tone, we are gonna try to um, activate something, something of value in that addiction. So, here, I'm going to turn it over to Gaul, who is the Morris and Alma faculty fellow um, in the core curriculum um, and the Department of Philosophy at the 
Columbia University in the city of New York. Um, also a very good friend of mine whom I've had the pleasure of working with um, in the last few weeks. And yeah, take it away. Okay, thank you, Elena. It's Maurice and Alma Shapiro. By the way, the, the last name is, is very important. <laughs> okay, never mind. Um, <clears throat> okay, so, you know, let me, I, I will start by saying that this uh, problem, this embarrassment of philosophers that Elena was referring to is, uh, I mean, there's always been embarrassment of philosophers, but this specific kind of embarrassment is a modern phenomenon for the simple reason that while philosophy has always uh, been shaped and responded to uh, political, uh, or social events, uh, it's a relatively new phenomenon since the 18th century that philosophers feel the urge to respond to such events, sometimes also act politically in their, like, uh, under, with their, their, in their capacity as philosophers, with the authority that philosophy uh, gives them. So, you know, we know the story about Plato, uh, Plato uh, was traumatized by the um, fate of his teacher, Socrates, the, you know, the archetype of the publicly involved philosopher. And then Plato leaves the walls of Athens and he forms the first academy outside the walls. So literally philosophy starts uh, uh, where and when politics is ending. Okay, and you know, then there is the theory of forms. And of course, there there is political stuff in the sense that we are talking about justice and other virtues, but it's precisely not political in the sense that it is in this majestic, pure realm, very far from the ugliness and confusion of uh, our uh, imperfect world. Okay, so uh, that was Plato and his legacy. And then Hegel, uh, that's our next week, we jumped about two millennia. Uh, uh, for Hegel, this is no longer a viable or desirable option, okay? Uh, he thinks that it was possible for Plato and even uh, commendable because uh, pre-modern philosophers to begin had the privilege of genuine seclusion, okay? Whether it was the ancient academies or uh, medieval church, they could avoid the world, okay? And have this, uh, they could shelter at home as it were, okay? Or, or the monastery. Uh, but more than that, the world itself was nothing to marvel in. Like, uh, uh, so Hegel calls these two millennia of history uh, the, the epoch of unhappy consciousness, which is to say a, a time of a cultural decline of political violence. So the best philosophers can do is take a distance and safeguard these uh, ancient ideas of goodness and reason till the world again can accommodate them. Um, uh, which indeed uh, seems to be the case uh, in Hegel's time, at least uh, as far as Hegel is concerned, okay? Finally, history is back on its rails and, you know, modernity is a consummation of human history. Uh, so it seems, you know, if, if, we, if we buy into this assumption, this very optimistic assumption, it seems that um, the prospect of publicly involved philosophy indeed are tied to this assumption of very, very uh, optimistic assumption of Hegel that uh, the world is yet again accommodating for philosophical ideas. And I think whatever we think about uh, this Hegelian idea, I think we're very much still uh, given to this myth, you know, think of the 
popularity is still the nostalgia to people like Jean Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir as the um, you know the, the uh, modernist public intellectuals par excellence. Uh, so yeah, so it's as if to be a, a public intellectual is to do this. You know, you just give the world a, a bit more of a push, so it's uh, you know uh, uh, realizes its uh, inherent telos, its inherent purpose. Okay, so. Um, but I mean, I, you know, we would want, at least I would want, I think Elena too, would want to, uh, uh, you know, to, to maybe uphold or at least uh, yeah, give room to the idea of publicly involved philosophy, even if you are not so optimistic uh, as Hegel, as Hegel is. Um, even actually, even in terms of Hegel, Hegel himself had uh, uh, a career in um, public commentary side by side with his philosophical career. Uh, he hoped to do more of that when he was young, but he has written a few um, public um, articles over the years, and uh, they were actually not so successful to say the least. So Jürgen Abermas calls his journalistic, Hegel's journalistic career not so lucky. You know, some of them were not even published because the events um, the events uh, just uh, rendered them obsolete, you know, before they, were, before they had a chance to appear in print. Uh, when they did appear, uh, it didn't, um, yeah, it's, it's um, uh, so later on the events uh, frustrated Hegel's expectation of them. So it seems even, you know, in, if, if, if in order to be a philosophical pandit, we need to be optimistic as Hegel. So, uh, you know, it seems like an impasse, even, you know, for, for Hegel's, Hegel's own case, as it were. Okay, so, but happily, uh, I think in Hegel, there is another strand of, uh, and there is another strand in this thought of, about public philosophy, okay, which doesn't uh, involve this unwarranted, optimism. Uh, so according to this strand, the second strand, uh, the modern philosopher has to comment on the world of practice because unlike the pre-modern philosopher is always also a worldly individual. So engaged in work, love, politics. Okay, so it doesn't have the kind of seclusion the pre-modern philosophers used to have. And since his identity is so intertwined, with practical life, uh, practical life. Uh, so uh, thinking about practical life, responding to practical life, commenting on practical life is conditioned to attaining uh, maybe philosophy's most uh, prized knowledge, which is self-knowledge. Okay, and you know to pick the arc example. So Hegel uh, is concluding his phenomenology of spirit in 1806 in Jena and uh, Napoleon's uh, troops are just marching into the city. So if Hegel wants to know himself, he needs also to understand this, the politician that uh, overhauls his life and the lives of all others. Again, Hegel is also an ordinary European individual. So he needs to understand Napoleon, okay? So uh, this is how Alexander Kozhev, one of his greatest uh, scholars, the Hegel scholars begins his lectures, okay, about this scene. Hegel just wants to understand himself, but in order to do, to do that, he has to make sense of Napoleon. So this 
this new sensibility, okay, this connection between uh, politics and self-knowledge, between, between worldly affairs and self-knowledge, this ethical, call it ethical political sensibility. Uh, so Foucault, uh, <clears throat> a century after Hegel, he traces it back to Kant, okay, uh, to um, Kant's uh, uh, article, What is Enlightenment? Okay, and Foucault publishes a similar, I mean, an article with the same title uh, in the 80s, and it goes back to Kant and he claims that it draws this unlikely uh, parallel between uh, Kant, the Prudish philosopher, and Charles Baudelaire, uh, the not so Prudish uh, poet. And he calls this, Foucault calls this sens new sensibility that again he finds both in Kant and Foucault, uh, Kant and uh, Baudelaire, because it's the attitude of modernity. And what does it entail? So I would say at least three things. So the, this modern individual, so one, um, he is, has this obsession with the now. He wants to understand the now in the sense of difference. How does the now is different from yesterday? What is new? Okay, that's one. So it's a diagnosis of sorts, okay? But then there is also a prescription, okay? So you don't just understand the now. Uh, the now also, it's as if you, through this understanding, you set yourself a task, okay? You try to uh, uh, make yourself, design yourself uh, in accordance with this now, okay? You make yourself modern in this sense, okay? And third, uh, there is the understanding that this ethical endeavor, okay, of understanding the world around you, changing yourself accordingly, is also thoroughly political in the sense that this kind of self-transformation is possible only given broader social condition and conditions, and in turn, it facilitates the imagination of a novel, more just, more free, simply beautiful, more beautiful world. Okay, so this is the attitude of modernity. And um, I mean, it's interesting, I would say, uh, it's interesting that Foucault coins this term in, in this, again, this article titled, What is Enlightenment? And I think it uh, betrays something about this very com complicated relationship that to this, to the tradition of enlightenment and more specifically, Work, yeah, what he calls uh, modernity. So I want to move now uh, briefly to Foucault, to his uh, maybe most famous political engagement with the Islamic Revolution in Iran, and you see what, what can we learn from this study case, as it were. Okay, so one thing just in terms of, by way of background, uh, Foucault felt, so he in the late 70s, in 1978, he approaches the Italian daily Corriere della Sera. And the idea first is, so Foucault had this dream of being, <clears throat> had this uh, notion of philosopher journalist. So he wanted to be the philosopher journalist writing a history of the present. And he approaches uh, Corriere della Sera first to write a series of features actually about Jimmy Carter's America and um, uh, America, you know, for, for Foucault and for many other continent, continental intellectuals included is the land of possibility. Okay, Hegel called America the land of the future. And I think it fascinates, you know, some of them obviously some, some uh, you know, Freud say, they said some very unpleasant things about America, but those uh, 
those who liked America, um, yes, the, because it was, as it were, less real, uh, it meant that it's, there's more possibility, okay? So America is somehow uh, somewhat uh, withdrawn, with, um, um, withdrawn from all the complexes and, and rigid structures of European political history, okay? So America is this uh, land of ambiguity, as it were, in the best sense of the world. world. So eventually it didn't happen. So, uh, you know, in the, in the um, ironic as it is, or in the whirlwind of events, uh, Foucault ends up not talking about the great Satan, you know, that's uh, America's epithet, uh, epithet in, by, you know, that Khomeini uh, gave it a few years later, but about the revolution in Iran. And, um, but also in Iran, uh, so Foucault goes there, so he pays, goes on two visits to Iran in 1978. Also there, what attracts him most is the ambiguity of the event. And there is a beautiful, he put, he put it quite beautifully, he says the Iranians are swimming in ambiguity, okay? So, so Foucault, what, what he finds in Iran is not quite reality as much as possibility, a lot of possibility. Now, um, um, so now, you know, in this, it's in this point, maybe in brackets, uh, I think we both, and you know, it will come up also in, in Lena's, um, and then it's talking about the current events, uh, we, we find this ambiguity interesting or this attraction to ambiguity, but it's very important to stress that it shouldn't be confused with um, uh, some sort of romanticized glossing on the, you know, very, the very real, very real realities of the Islamic revolution. And we also know where it led to, okay? So, the idea is that uh, maybe, and I'm not sure that Foucault was able to do this, but maybe you can strike kind of balance between on the one hand being uh, clear headed about the complexity of the historical events, the uh, trends leading to it, uh, the possibility that it might go in a very different direction, but probably go in a very different direction than the kind of possibilities that you are detecting there. So having this on the one hand, but still uh, uh, have what I'd like to call a commitment to possibility, okay? Insisting on the possibility in the reality of the situation as it were. Okay, uh, and kind of this, this uh, holding together, uh, this balance is a very difficult endeavor, but when it happens, it's, it's quite worthwhile. So, uh, and I, I think that this is where the value of philosophical interventions uh, can be, okay? Uh, so, you know, I think it would be clearest if we juxtaposed uh, the kind of interventions that philosophers make with other groups, you know, take for example, uh, epidemiologists or political scientists, okay? So they are uh, beholden to the facts and also to the norms of their profession. Um, we, you know, politicians, obviously, you know, they think about the next elections, they don't want to give promises that they cannot uh, hold. Um, sometimes they do, but then other calculations come in, okay? so. Uh, I would say that philosophers, and I'm going to put it a bit provocatively, 
philosophers are not beholden to reality now. Uh, why provocation? Because obviously, philosophy isn't philosophy just about reality, <laughs> what is really real, okay? Uh, what is real beyond the shadows of, uh, of the world. But uh, the point is that, so we shouldn't, so uh, when, when we say that uh, they are not beholden to reality, it's not to say that uh, reality is not of an interest. But the point is that in, in this, philosophers are able to go beyond reality or see the totality of, uh, of the picture, rather just the kind of hard facts Okay, so if you'd like to use an old metaphor, not just the trees, but the forest, as it were. Okay, um, so this holding into totality is a, a challenge that uh, when it's done well, so philosophers are perhaps best equipped to do it. Uh, so it's uh, unlike Hegel, Foucault's uh, philosophic journalistic career uh, was not just, you know, gauging the extent to which history conforms to the plan that he prescribed to it. Uh, if anything, it was the opposite, okay, to remind us that history can still shock us, okay? Um, and I'm going to say another word about it in a second, but they did, they did share uh, something fundamental in common, and uh, this point, I would say, in two ethical dimensions of this endeavor. Okay, so the first ethical dimension, again, of this kind of uh, philosophical punditry is uh, that the, the model for such commitment to possibility is normally, we, we don't find it in politics, uh, at least not in liberal politics, uh, but in intimate relationships, specifically love and uh, friendship. Okay, to love another person, uh, whether it's romantic, parental, uh, fraternal, is to see aspects of the other that are concealed or suppressed in their relationship with strangers. So, you know, given the pressure we are exposed to with professional colleagues and with friends on social media, so we have the habit of showing only what we are in our assertive and self-possessed aspects okay only our lovers and friends can see uh, call it uh, yeah things that we are embarrassed about maybe even ashamed of okay and if they don't only see it they also affirm it so this kind of you know what Hegel calls recognition can help this potential this possibility become reality um, so uh, and but importantly the value of this attitude is not dependent on whether the potential indeed comes becomes reality i would say uh, that uh, to love another okay uh, including kind of the excitement and, and beauty which is involved involved in it is just is okay to be faithful to such possibilities both of the other of myself within the within the relationship and the relationship as a whole Okay, that's what just what if you don't if, if you don't see it if you don't open to it so you don't love another. Uh, so thinking about the model of intimate relationship, I think can help also uh, make sense of uh, what Foucault. Also Hegel to some extent think that politics, political intervention can be placed in precious moments. Um, 
So the second, yeah, the second dimension of uh, the second ethical dimension of it has to do with, uh, yeah, the way in which, again, commitment to possibility facilitates self-knowledge and self-transformation. And just one example, you know, Foucault was uh, Foucault's fascinations with, with the revolution was uh, led him to a Persian mystic called Mansur al-Khalaj. So he was executed. This was in the 10th century. Uh, because he upheld the, um, the mantra, Anal Haq, I am the truth, okay? And uh, there is another thinker that was, was fascinated by Ali Shariati, and he once asked, what if Iranian society consisted of 25 million halajas? Such burnings, he replied, are of a kind of spiritual insanity. There would be life and there would be liberty. So Foucault called this hybrid of self and collective emancipation, making history through the transformation of the self, political spirituality. So now, you know, and then now I'm, uh, that's kind of the final word. So uh, Foucault no, knew very well, you know, when, when he uh, celebrates such traditionalist images, okay, like Shia Islam, that he would scandalize his European readers. But that was the point. Okay, so he's reversing a well-worn Orientalist trope that the Orient is stagnated. And for Foucault, the Western subjectivity is stagnated. It's uh, captured, uh, caught in the epistemic and political chains of the Enlightenment. Okay, so for Foucault, you know, even, even Marxist philosophers, let alone uh, liberal pandits, continue to confirm something that Marx says in the Communist Manifesto, that is that the Western bourgeoisie has uh, made a world, conjured up a world in its own image. So the problem, Foucault's problem is not just the oppressive implications of it, but, uh, you know, kind of nihilism and tedium and boredom that it foretells, okay? So I think we should see his political commentary also in this context. So the idea is not just to say something about reality, but unsettle the subjectivity of both himself and his readers, make room to what he calls, and this is again a quite striking um, a phrase, make room to what he calls uh, what one could never imagine capable of becoming. So back to you, Elena. Um, thank you. So um, obviously this is a talk that you've all been brought into under the advertising that we're going to say something about the current crisis, um, which is the task that I've been charged with. Um, and so I'm gonna look at two examples um, of interventions, again, by kind of prominent, prominent philosophers, both of whom are continental philosophers, working not exactly, but kind of in a, in a sort of dialogue with Foucault. Um, and the first of those kind of, you know, I wanna put as a somewhat cautionary tale, lest I think Gaul's very inspiring picture gives the impression that kind of all is well with philosophical punditry. So the first example that I wanna give is the Italian thinker, Giorgio Agamben, who's both a noted continental philosopher, sort of Heideggerian, Foucaultian type, I don't really know how to describe him. Um, and incidentally, he's also a resident of Northern Italy, where of course was the epicenter of COVID before, before New York was the epicenter of COVID. Um, and famously early on in the crisis, just as things were getting really bad in Northern Italy, he basically said COVID was no worse than the seasonal flu. 
um, its death rate was no worse, its symptoms were no worse, and that if that were true, it would follow fairly obviously that the kind of extreme measures having that had been used in China and were being imposed, as he wrote, in Northern Italy could hardly be justified um, on any grounds. Um, but behind that, he had a bigger worry, which he did articulate, which is sort of that the imperative of biological survival in itself leads to what he calls a state of exception. And both of those terms, biological survival, which he calls bare life, and the notion of a state of exception are concepts that he's kind of made fundamental to his thinking. So these are very much, this is the application of some of his own conceptual machinery to the crisis. So basically the idea is that um, the usual freedoms of movement, of speech, of assembly, whatever, have been suspended, borders have been closed, we have no more right to privacy. And Agamben is basically very worried that this state of exception is going to increasingly become the default norm under the guise of public health. Um, understandably, of course, in these sections of the intellectual press that pay attention to someone like Agamben, he's been pretty roundly dismissed as a paranoid conspiracist, a denialist of science. Um, and it seems like those things probably ring true. I mean, certainly he's dug in his heels on his characterization of the virus. He kind of had this very silly analogy just last week in an interview in which he basically said, you know, for centuries, theologians purported to tell men how to live um, in the name of a God whose attributes they could not precisely define. Now, you know, virologists and epidemiologists purport to tell us how to live in the name of a virus and they can't even tell us what a virus precisely is. I mean, truly, truly like childish, childish stuff. But I think it's worth asking if setting aside the kind of, um, you know, veneer of charlatanism and denialism, if there's something of value um, in what Agamben's saying. And I think there is. Um, and that his kind of focus on this, um, or his, the attention he draws to the focus on mere survival, um, does in fact have real and dangerous material implications. States are using the need for social distancing as an opportunity for expanding and entrenching both um, pre-existing but also new modes of um, social control and repression. These can be very soft like surveillance. These can be very harsh like closed borders, quarantines, lockdowns. Um, and you know we've seen this very explicitly in places you know famously like Hungary and India but it's really happening all over. And it's really not sufficient to say that we're doing this voluntarily because we need to social distance or that we're doing it you know, in a more ethical key, kind of altruistically. Um, you know, to make a very crude analogy, the fact that you know, someone who has a gun to his head can't choose freely, even if he agrees completely with the demands of his captor. Um, I think that you know, for Agamben, he read this analogy as saying something like, because there's a gun to our heads, the captor's demands have no merit. And I think that's a familiar move that's basically the right one in lots of cases. So say after 9-11, when terrorism was used as a pretext for repression at home and war abroad, um, Agamben's critics basically say that because the captor's demands do have merit, that we do need to socially distance, um, we sort of shouldn't worry about the gun at our heads. And the situation in which we find ourselves now is one in which 
the demands are perhaps reasonable, or at least there is something real backing them up. It's not just a kind of phantasm of a threat, but in which we do have to face up to the fact that there's a gun to our heads. And we don't end up seeing that in any of the back and forth between Agamben and his critics, precisely because all that we get is this debate over whether this eminent philosopher has descended into mere conspiracy theory. And that's very embarrassing for him. And I think probably something that's avoidable um, if he hadn't been precisely so committed to being right and being able to make sense of things in an exact way. Um, in contrast, I want to turn now to a second figure, perhaps much more famous, Slavoj Žižek, whom I'm sure um, most of you have heard of, um, who I think is also seen as something of an embarrassment um, for slightly different reasons than Agamben. So it's not so much that he's getting things wrong, but it's just that he's not a very kind of careful thinker. So he came out with a book in early April, less than a month after the crisis kind of really hit um, the Euro-American sphere. Um, this is kind of, you know, a totally slapdash, half-baked book that is not really, you know, only merits the term book because it's been put between two covers, really it's just an assortment of op-eds that he's written. Um, but I think that kind of reveals something precisely about the value of public philosophy. So there's something shameless about it. And um, he himself uses this adverb shamelessly on a couple occasions in the book, one in which he sort of says, you know, I'm just gonna quote Wikipedia for you. Um, you know, and that's, it doesn't matter, this kind of sense of scholarly rigor. And the other in which he just kind of basically quotes a long letter from a friend talking about the possibility of non-alienated labor under the pandemic. Um, so, you know, I think that despite this sense of kind of, you know, this not being a particularly kind of like carefully written or well edited book, there is actually something of value or salutary in the sensibility that it espouses. Um, what I mean by sensibility is something quite distinct from the concrete proposals that Zizek made. So basically, the substance of his book or what he calls for is something that he calls communism, which is not surprising. It doesn't have, really have any resemblance to communism in the normal sense. What he means is not the overcoming of capitalism, the advent of a classless society, but really just kind of sending more money and authority to the World Health Organization, ensuring up universal healthcare systems and welfare systems in countries, particularly where those have suffered from decades of austerity. Um, and you know, those are obviously not particularly creative or philosophically rich proposals in their substance, but I think that, you know, we can point out and perhaps should that those are kind of, you know, pretty uninteresting. But to do so misses what's valuable in Zizek's intervention, which is this kind of um, sense of precisely the kind of new sort of political sensibility of openness that I think Gall correctly identified in a more sophisticated form in Foucault. So, um, you know, we can see this kind of not as the full articulation of a kind of political ideology, but as a sort of like glimmer of hope in the least likely place. So against Agamben, Zizek suggests that, you know, his very nice quote, which is that it's through our effort to save humanity from self-destruction that we're creating a new humanity. So then, you know, that in this 
time of crisis and in this era of both um, the threat of disease and also political repression, there may be something to be excavated um, that's actually very hopeful and open-ended there. Um, in order to see that, I think we need to distinguish between sort of like two levels of discourse. So the first of those is just the articulating policies and those can be anything from kind of like stopgap measures to societal overhauls. And this is the place where Zizek is totally uninteresting. I mean, what he calls for is reasonable, insufficient, um, but not particularly interesting, not anything that you couldn't read in, in any major liberal newspaper. The second level though, which is where I think he does have something to teach us is to go beyond the question of policy and to ask this more fundamental question of what it means in the very first place to live well as an individual and as a community. Um, and I think that it's important to hold on to the idea that the fact that we're living in such a severe state of biological and political crisis doesn't render that second level either trivial or naive. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that despite the fact that things are not going well, and even if they're not likely to go well, we can still sort of recognize that probabilistic assessment and still think that in the face of this enormity, um, we might hope that there are the germs of a new sort of consciousness that might arise. And, you know, I think that in this perhaps optimistic or holding on to this hopeful key, we can see the surge in popularity of ideas like rent strikes, rapid decarceration on a wide scale, universal income guarantees that have long been popular in certain segments of the left suddenly become legible, um, if not kind of universally mandated. And those of course are themselves policies. I mean, they're not you know, taken individually, they belong to this first level of policy, but taken collectively, they entail a kind of fundamental shift in our understanding of social relations. Um, they require rethinking the supposed necessary links between wage labor and the necessities of social reproduction to individuals between um, punishment and supposed crime. They demystify the relationship between the individual and the community. Um, and, you know, even if, you know, we certainly don't want to claim that the fact that the Republican federal administration has sent out one-time checks for $1,200 to all American taxpayers, and nor do we want to suggest that, like, the fact that the Republican attorney general is calling for the limited release of low-risk prisoners doesn't make him a prison abolitionist, but the fact that those calls are being made, I think, should be rightly um, seen as an opportunity for a much more transformative vision to be pushed. And that, of course, is going to look in its early stages precisely naive. And the role for philosophy, I think, is in some sense to, you know, take it so, um, to, to take up the mantle of pushing this um, seemingly unrealistic or possibly naive optimism and trying to push it a little bit further along. Um, so, you know, this is, this is kind of, uh, to, to wrap up, I think we can ask, what have we learned from the two historical examples, Hegel and Foucault that Gaul talked about, and Agamben and Zizek, the two contemporary examples that I talked about, what can we learn from them about philosophical punditry? So, 
I mean, I think one thing is that where it's valuable is when it arrives kind of open to the world and it comes in kind of excited about possibility and uncertainty rather than with the kind of pretension to expert systematic knowledge or the ability to theorize events as they're happening in some kind of comprehensive detail. You know, I think in most cases that kind of valuable stance is going to end up looking um, either, you know, naive and optimistic and not really understanding political realities as Foucault has been accused of, or simply kind of childish and superficial as Zizek himself often can be. Um, but I think that's actually precisely the strength. Um, and, you know, I think it's helpful to remember for those of you who are tempted to try your hands at philosophical punditry, that not taking that stance or taking the opposite stance and assuming an expert position will actually make you look far worse. So if you try too hard to be right, to interpret the world according to a theory that you hold to be true that is antecedently developed, what you're gonna end up looking like is not simply naive, you're gonna end up looking like a gombin and you're gonna end up in a sort of like maze of paranoia and denialism. You're gonna look a lot stupider. Um, so before I sign off, I mean, I think that returning to this very nice point that Gall made that we've been going back and forth about, this idea that the philosophy's um, more tenuous links to reality is precisely what makes it valuable as a place of political and social commentary. Because it's less tied to reality, it's more open to possibility. And those possibilities don't have to be the most probable one or the most realistic one, according to the usual calculus, in order to be taken seriously. And it's precisely that ability to take seriously, the improbable, the uncertain, and the merely possible, where philosophical punditry, on the one hand, can often look very naive, but where its value fundamentally lies. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, and thank you so much.